welcome everyone. Uh, full disclosure, this is my first like Zoom training. So I will try and move along, but also remain uh, like interactive because I don't want to lecture you. Um, so what we will do is we'll go ahead and we'll get started. Um, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I work in community mental health. Um, and one of the things that we focus on at my agency is, uh, you know, really supporting direct care staff from clinicians to um, peer support specialists, the gambit of support people who work with our clientele and safety is a huge part of that. And so this training, um, is born out of a desire to just help people be able to manage and respond um, after assessing a crisis is taking place. So it's not about like restraint or seclusion, but more about the individual and assessing, managing, and responding to once you've identified crises. Um, about every 15 to 20 minutes, I will try and um, take a break to ask for questions. Um, but if there's certain pertinent to the training that comes up, go ahead and shoot it in the group chat. And um, hopefully um, I can see it right away because there are a lot of people on the training um, and then I'll try and address it. Um, so for a brief icebreaker, I would also like to ask you to take note of what is in your cup today. Like, is it honey? Is it vinegar? Is it lemonade? And is your cup half full or half empty? Does anyone want to share what's in their cup? Because I can tell you lemonade is in mine and I think I'm full. I'm remaining optimistic. Thai tea, halfway. <laughs> Good old water, okay. I was having tea coffee and full. Okay. So I think we're, oh, Americano. Half empty vinegar. <laughs> well, I think that, um, you know, you can only do what you can do. Water, half full, half full with carrot juice. Okay. That's great. It at least means that many of us are aware of what's going on in us. Tropical punch, skinny fit, half empty. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and share the screen now. All righty. So essentially, this is a safety and crisis prevention intervention and response. It is typically a full day training, so we'll hone in on the field portion. Um, the objectives are typically to um, identify three specific practices to ensure safety in an office and field-based setting while engaging mental health consumers. So that's focus today will be drilled down to field-based. We'll talk about situational awareness, how to apply it, um, identifying specific practices to ensure safety um, when we're out in the field and doing uh, field-based or street-based outreach uh, specifically to mental health consumers. And then we'll make sure to cover like defining a crisis and self-regulation, including nonverbal and verbal de-escalation techniques. The goal is really not to um, teach you how to react, but to help you to become more comfortable with your um, natural response to what you perceive as an ensuing crisis or it's already happening, or just the way that people on a team respond to crises um, and define it as well, the communication around crises. Um, 
because we do want to focus on the field, we're going to go ahead and skip to awareness and response. Um, what is super important about safety in the field is assessing and managing crises. So when you're assessing a crisis, you're still trying to figure out if you have one. You're, you're identifying questions to ask, are we in the middle of a crisis? Is someone at risk of losing freedom or losing, you know, and freedom in terms of, you know, are they gonna harm themselves or someone else and be hospitalized? Or are they engaging in a behavioral response that could land them in jail? You know, or is this something that can be met or addressed with maybe food, shelter, clothing? So when we talk about awareness and response, we first have to identify the difference between assessing a crisis and managing a crisis. So as you're assessing, you're gathering information you're asking more questions. You're figuring out in the moment, okay, who are the people I'm most likely to have to call if this escalates, right? The assessment portion can also be ongoing. You know, um, for many people, say for example, a clinician may say, oh, we are full on crisis. We have um, danger to self, danger to others. We have a plan. Uh, we have intent, we have desire, we have capability, whereas a family member may say, oh, no, it's not a crisis, that's just this person. So when we talk about assessment versus management of a crisis, we have to use the same language on the team, meaning, do I see what you see in terms of how we're going to respond, or are we both on the same page about now this is a crisis and we need to manage it? In terms of field office versus safety, um, when you're in the field and we're talking about awareness and assessment and managing crises, we're talking about are you aware of what's going on around you? Um, are you aware of what this client presented with before you started engaging with them in terms of like history? Um, we're also talking about what supports you believe that they may need or appear to need. Um, are you aware of also what's going on in you? So when we talk about awareness and response, we're talking about knowing two things, what's going on in you and what's going on around you. So one of the exercises that we definitely like to do is give everybody one minute to look around you. Look around you, even though you're at home or maybe you are in an office or maybe maybe a classroom setting, take one minute to look around and identify potential safety issues. And let's see um, what we come up with. So for example, I am sitting in front of a very large window. Oh, someone says I have limited access to a door. Trip hazards. There's cat toys on the floor I could slip. I'm on the third floor of my home. Cords are on the ground, it's a trip hazard. How often are we in these areas and we don't notice this, right? Um, someone put all clear here, okay? So generally clumsy, fall on air. <laughs> when we talk about awareness, we're talking about being aware of the things we're so used to seeing regularly. You know, um, maybe you are used to working with a client in their space. And maybe you're so used to how this client presents that certain things no longer bother you. 
Um, we were at a training recently where a staff member reported that they're so used to working with the homeless that their um, sense of smell has dulled. But one day when the building they were working on, working in caught fire, um, no one smelled it. And my question was, how come no one in the building was aware? And the only conclusion that we were able to come to as a group was maybe we're so used to the area that we're in affecting our nostrils that we just subconsciously turn off that sense, right? So when we talk about awareness and we talk about assessment and management of crisis situations, we're talking about being so aware that you're even aware that you're used to behavior that may seem normal, but you're also continuously assessing if this can turn into a crisis. And in the event that it does turn into a crisis, you're aware of your not only emotional response, but your external response that can either increase and escalate a situation, increase the safety issue, or you can manage the situation and de-escalate the individual. We're also talking about being aware of you know, how comfortable you are in the field versus how comfortable you are in the office. For example, in the office, you may have your mug with you full of hot tea or something like that, and your cell phone in your hand, you're walking through, you're chit-chatting with people left and right um, because you're comfortable, you feel safe. Well, in the field, would you have your phone out and your cup in your hand and walking and talking with a client? Or would you have your hands free? Would you have eye contact consistently on that client? Would you be taking in what's going on around you? Um, would you notice exit routes? Would you notice if there's something like a pothole that you're about to kind of step over or around? Would you notice that this client has had their fist clenched from the time you guys met up um, and started walking to this point? Would you notice that this client has usually responded pretty well to your presence, but they seem a little grumpy today. You know, those are all assessment questions and awareness and, and marrying the two. And so when we talk about the awareness and the response, it's gathering information, taking in information, and responding in the event you decide we are going into a crisis or we are in a crisis and you need to manage it. Um, and then also, the awareness of what comes up for you when you sense, feel, or expect to be in a situation that makes you um, uncomfortable or feel unsafe. So some other things to be aware of in terms of like your physical space and assessing um, a crisis situation would be, where are you? Who is surrounding you? Um, where is your closest, um, kind of beacon of light if there was an emergency? You know, are you close to a police station? Where are you parked? Um, does this client typically carry weapons? Um, did you lock your doors? What is in your front seat? Is this client safe to transport? You keep your phone in your hand and your um, awareness level is always up around clients. You leave cups in the car for safety. Okay, well, what's great about your awareness in that that situation is one of the things that is helpful is you've built that into your safe and healthy practices. You know, when we talk about building and establishing safety practices and healthy practices, um, we're talking about something that you can build into your routine that is consistently going to keep you alert, aware, and, and safe. 
When I say alert, some of us can be aware, but exhausted or burned out. And so our alert can be, um, our sense of alertness can be dulled. And so while we see an issue, depending on our level of um, alertness and are we burned out, are we eating right? Do we have our meal? Do we have our water? We could actually rationalize something that presents as a safety issue later. So when I say alertness and awareness, I do see them as two different things. So when we talk about building and establishing healthy and safe practices, practices that are gonna keep you alert, that are gonna keep you aware, um, and then things that are gonna keep you safe. So does anyone have any specific healthy practices that they, um, with the person who wrote down, you know, leaving the cup at the office, things like that, does anyone have any of those practices that they engage in? Try to meet your clients on, out in the field, try to be aware of your surroundings, let the team know of my location, traveling light, I think what's super important about the traveling light is sometimes we will put things in our pocket and if something falls out, then we, we kind of have to figure out, oh, okay, like it, let me go pick that up and it, and it can be a distraction. So traveling light can also um, mean just your keys, your ID, your badge. Um, checking in with supervisors when you arrive at the location, sharing your location is something that's huge. Having solid shoes on, sitting near an exit, especially inside of a client's home, I would encourage you to try to, nice and hopeful way, discourage them from locking you in on the other side. Parking on the street facing the direction where you're going to leave and heading your purse, um, placing your purse in the back, excellent. Um, going in only with items that are needed. Wonderful. Like these are really great practices that if you're using them in the field, we don't want to take them for granted either. So they're great practices. So let's say, for example, we're so used to putting our purse in our trunk and locking our doors that we leave something in it and now have to go back. You know, we're we're talking about alertness and awareness in a way that keeps you consistently safe aware um, and alert. Let's look at some more. Um, no lanyard on the neck, perfect. Always take your phone with me in case I need to call someone. What is super interesting is a lot of people go into homes or the field with their phone needing to be charged. Um, limit what you carry, of course. Share calendars on Outlook, yes. Um, some other things are, to be aware of is your clothing. What are you wearing? Um, I used to work with someone who would wear these like super high heels into clients' homes and she had very long fingernails with um, like jewels and things on them. And even though it was all beautiful and she was always very professional, um, we worked in a neighborhood where it was it was not the most effective way to get to and from your car in the event of an emergency or to be able to open a door or to be able to grab your keys, right? So what are you wearing? What's on your body? You know, um, how are you presenting? Also, protecting your belongings. Are you ending in the field so that you have to take all of your stuff with you? And if so, do you have a briefcase that locks? Um, being aware of who is in the area. How many police cars do you see? Um, if you see any, is it nice and quiet today or does it seem a little bit more busy? 
Um, does the energy seem a little tense? Many of us work in encampments. And one of the things that we have to take note of, especially now, is um, proximity. Are there people behind us? Are there people along the sides of us? Is our conversation between the two of us, um, you know, in a physical space that is kind of cramped? And so I wouldn't be able to move quickly. Uh, let's see. Awareness of the time of day is huge, uh, especially with time changes. Uh, sensing something is not right. Your intuition is a huge component of the way that we work with people. The exchange of energy is consistent. And so many of us are able to know when we see our client, oh, something's off. What's going on? How are they feeling? Uh, I think that that's important when we talk about assessing, because if we're assessing and your client comes in and they're disgruntled and their face is all like scrounged up, you know, and you're like, hey, so-and-so, what's going on? Is everything okay? You know, because now you're gathering information about something that's unusual in their facial expression and you're feeling something is off. So aside from just like these healthy practices which are behavioral in nature, we also have to hear what's going on inside of us um, internally. So also being around, aware of what's going on in you. Um, along the lines of the lanyard around the neck, being aware of items that can be grabbed, pulled, caught, snatched, or otherwise used as a weapon. Um, Communicating your whereabouts, not just to a supervisor, but also maybe to a teammate in the same area. If you can go in twos, going in twos. Uh, knowing your exits, arriving on time and leaving on time so that people can say, oh, they were supposed to be here from here to here. You know, um, minimizing excess accessories like earrings, watches, bracelets, things like that. Knowing as much about your client as possible. Don't go to new areas alone, park in well-lit areas. These are all safety practices um, that can help with continuing to be alert, aware, and safe in the field. Um, let's see. Any questions or feedback around those items? Let's see. Yes, be aware of who is in the home and who is around the home. Um, for those of us, <laughs> leave the Maserati at home, yes. Um, for those of us who have like um, long hair braiding or um, things like that, if you're going into an area where you're not sure, especially now when we're talking about a lot of airborne illnesses, we're talking about um, cleanliness, we're talking about um, transmitting of different things, hair up is always a great thing. Um, tie your hair back if you have it. Um, you can be alert. And as someone says, sometimes it's hard not to be paranoid and still alert. Well, we're not talking about paranoia in the sense of, oh, something's going to happen to you. It's what kind of situation am I walking into? So that's the other thing about building and establishing a healthy practice and assessing is, well, where am I going and what may I walk into, right? Because it's uh, about the preparatory work. Where am I going? What am I likely to face? I know I've been working with this client for a very long time, um, you know, but what, where are we? What is the, the um, 
environment like? Um, I have a client who we've been working in over a year um, on uh, shifting the catastrophic thought process because what is um, interesting is the thought process was focused on a pandemic that would take out the whole, uh, you know, Inland Empire region, starting with her and her family, and it was very paralyzing. Well, now that we're at the place where it's like, oh, okay, we we are experiencing something like this, we now have to do constant assessment like well where are you what are you thinking um when they're walking into the office like doing a body scan like okay she well groomed she seems alert make eye contact facial expression appears appropriate you know you're, you're also doing a, a a similar to a mental status exam but it's more of an in the moment um assessment of what energy are they giving off um what do they look like um, do they, does it seem like something is off with them? You know, because the, the most important part about managing safety is assessing for potential safety issues. Um, know your environment and gain colors used. Always having a contingency plan. Listening to your gut feeling. These are super duper duper important things that can help keep you safe. Um, I do want to take some time out to ask if there are any questions. Um, in terms of if there are more slides, yes, we're going to um, move forward through them. Um, and Elizabeth, let us know that we'll get more information about getting that information out to you guys after the training. This is a huge one um, about flying about COVID-19 before going to visit. Um, one of the interesting things is because um, you know, I'm not a medical professional. One of the questions I have been asking is, oh, have you felt okay lately? Have you had to go to urgent care for any reason? You know, just kind of gauging how they've been um, feeling. Um, how are we supposed to defend ourselves when attacked? So we'll actually transition into, um, you know, preventing being attacked by being aware and alert. Um, and then also thank you, Rocio, for know the kind of things that may trigger a client and keep them from escalating. So we are actually going to transition into uh, those areas. Uh, like I mentioned, it's usually a full day training, so I'm, I'm gonna condense things, but please let me know um, in the next question period, like if we need to come back to awareness and response. Okay. So in terms of safety in the field, some brief things to be aware about. Also, vehicle safety. Are you parking in an area that um, is no parking? Or are they doing construction? Um, are you parking in an area where you can get to it easily in the event of an emergency? I learned firsthand that LA County Department of Mental Health does not pay you for tickets that you may get for parking in an area that was not, um, it didn't have a lot of good signage. So vehicle safety also includes where are you parking and the likelihood of you getting a ticket? Are you able to get to your vehicle swiftly? Um, also what's in your vehicle. Uh, oftentimes I encourage people, you should have nothing in your vehicle when you're parking it. Uh, no matter where you're going, you know, if you can move things to the to the trunk, move them to the trunk. 
physical safety. Again, what are you wearing? What do you have on? What kind of shoes do you have on? How close are you sitting next to people? Um, do you ever find yourself in a position where your back is against the wall? Uh, do you ever find yourself in a position where people are frequently coming up behind you and you're, you're kind of not aware until they get right up on you? Um, have you been, uh, you know, offended against by this client before? Does this client have a history of aggression toward others? Um, is the client around people who tend to be physically aggressive? Is there a way to meet that client outside of that space? Um, so when we talk about physical safety, it's not just about the physical person, but the physical environment as well. Um, are you in an area where maybe there was a recent fire, right? Um, are you in an area where maybe there was recent flooding? You know, being aware of just those kind of things and being able to meet in other areas. Um, don't leave expensive items in your car. Um, yes, even things that may look like someone would be attempted. That is super important. The super, super, super um, most helpful thing you can do is check the information that you've received about a client before going out so that you can prepare your, your um, physical person. Meaning uh, if I go into um, a situation where I am going to meet someone who is typically aggressive with new people, um, someone who uh, has low frustration tolerance, someone uh, who is actively withdrawing from substances. I may keep my hair up, I may not wear glasses, I may not wear jewelry, I may only go in with my actual car key and my ID and my cell phone. Um, so in terms of gathering the information before you can, uh, or excuse me, gathering the information before you meet a client, that would be super helpful as well. HIPAA, so HIPAA is huge. Um, this becomes a safety issue where I work, we had a situation where um, one person told the rest of the clients about another client's predatory behaviors. So the client went from everyone got along really well with that person to, oh, you're a sex offender. And the interesting thing was another cl that client came across this information from a conversation being held with the, um, for lack of a better way to differentiate, the offender and their therapist. And so when we talk about managing safety in the field, keeping information within that dialogue that doesn't need to be shared can also minimize safety issues. Um, especially if you're talking about rival gang members, or if you're in a setting like a jail or a detention center, or if you are um, in a homeless encampment where maybe you slip up and mention that someone has a um, tendency to steal, uh, things like that. So when we're, we're talking about protecting health information, um, we're also talking about minimum information necessary uh, in these settings that we're working within. Health and wellness, if you don't feel good, especially now, 
Um, on the one hand, when we talk about health and wellness, we talk about burnout. We talk about feeling stress and anxiety. We talk about the absence of sleep. We talk about dehydration. We talk about um, sitting in traffic for like an hour and a half. And then when you get out, you're agitated. You know, um, things that interfere with your ability to think clearly is usually what we label under health and wellness. But now we have, um, you know, this pandemic that we're experiencing where you have to know what's going on in you. You have to know where you're walking into. Is this an area that the county is currently trying to manage because of increased um, occurrences of you know, COVID-19 diagnoses? Uh, so when we talk about health and wellness, especially in the field, we're talking about taking care of you and then being aware of how your health may be impacted by the area that you're going into. Um, similar with biohazards. Um, and then does your team know where you are and how you're doing? So when we're talking about um, being aware, we're talking about knowing how you're doing, how you're feeling, where you're going, and what situation you may walk into. Yes, update your supervisor or team members every hour if it's um, feasible. And I agree with this. Never permit a client to walk you to your car. Um, sometimes you can't disallow someone to do something they deem polite, especially if we're looking at that cultural component. If this person is saying, well, you know, I, I need to walk you to a car, you know, uh, this is not a good neighborhood. Okay, well, you can walk me halfway. Or, oh, that's okay. Um, and maybe position yourself to keep an eye while you're walking to your car, continuing the conversation and saying, oh, okay, well, it was nice seeing you. It was nice checking in today. I think that what's important is there's a balance between honoring what's important to our clients because it's a people to people, it's person to person interaction. And so my friends would walk me to my car, right? Um, so I don't wanna say, oh, your client can't walk me to my car. But I might say, based on the history of that client, whether that client um, is incredibly unpredictable um, or the area that I'm in, or depending on how my car is parked, is it gonna put me in a position to have my back up against something? You know, there's a fine balance and I, I might say, oh, okay, well you can walk me halfway and then I got it. Um, Cause I gotta make a phone call, you know, and I, I kind of wanna have a little bit of privacy, but still honoring regardless of the practices um, that, that we go over, they have to be healthy and safe for the client as well. And that includes having a healthy, response to oh okay can i walk you to the door or here my mom made this cake for you or um i'm gonna walk you to your car yeah if it is a dangerous neighborhood you're absolutely right you may appreciate that um so yes and fsp transporting clients all the time so that is huge um one of the things that i recall about working in fsp was we never knew how our clients were gonna feel when we picked them up. Um, we never knew how they were gonna feel when they had a relapse and we had to find them on the street and bring them back uh, into intake, the three week detox that they had to go through, like just kind of like the cycle of their recovery process. We never knew where we were in that until they got clean. Um, but that didn't stop us from having transport. So one of the things that I think is super helpful um, as a practice, especially when we talk about health and wellness now, I think having um, a van, if you can, 
you know, like one of those nine passenger vans, even a six passenger van where one staff member sits in the back, the client sits in the middle. Um, and I would never encourage transporting more than one client at a time who is actively using. However, you do have to defer to your protocols, your policies. Um, but if we would find someone on the street and say, hey, do you want to come back? Um, it would be like, okay, well, I'm just going to sit in back, you know, go ahead, put your seatbelt on, make sure they're in and strapped in first. And then getting behind them and then having the driver, right? Always in the middle so that they're not directly behind the driver um, or directly behind the staff member who may have accompanied you guys if it was a particularly challenging case. Um, but seating is always important when you're transporting clients. And I, I would encourage you, as long as it takes for that client to deescalate, that's how long it takes before you allow them to get into a metal moving vehicle escalated agitated with someone um because then everyone around them is in danger um as well as the driver and themselves does anyone have uh any more feedback about that specifically some would say put your client in the back seat i'm a big fan a big believer of putting your client next to you in the passenger seat if the client attacks from behind is much scarier and unpredictable Right. Um, but would we, what do we think about putting an escalated or agitated client in the vehicle with us? So this is where our awareness and our alertness comes in. It, oh, I got to get these notes done. Or, you know, I got this other client to pick up. Well, is there someone who can go and get that client for you? Or is there a way to communicate that the plan has kind of um, been interrupted? We need to deescalate this client. A perfect Eric request for assistance, a two person team if possible. I think it's important to never put anyone who is escalated in a vehicle with you and then lock it um, from the inside. Yes, if I have a client that I felt he or she is dangerous, he, she, or they are dangerous, I would definitely ask a co worker to assist with transporting. Um, something that I saw a little bit ago um group outings i think one of the things about group outings especially when we're talking about awareness and safety is doing a temperature check how's everybody doing today you know we're getting ready to go on the outing is everybody comfortable still a staff member behind a staff member in front because it's easier to to surround a problem and provide support inward than it is for the problem to be all over the place and chaotic. And that's why in a group outing, you may always want to have more than um, two staff members if possible, if possible. Um, or just know your group as much as you can. And if you have really dysregulated people, because in FSP, a lot of the time it's trial and error until you get a groove, until your staff know each other, until the clients, especially a new client in an FSP group setting can really disrupt the storming and norming process. Um, and, and so it's kind of like just being aware of what you might walk into and trying to mitigate that by gathering information and increased communication amongst your team. Guys, you know, we got this new person, um, they're AB 109 client, they have a history 
history of aggression and intimidating others, why don't we try and split the group up and maybe the staff member who's a lot better with, you know, um, easily agitated clients can work with this client one-on-one. -on -one. Um, what are our thoughts on that? Let's see. Yes, always send to team members to meet with clients, especially if it's the first time. And yes, FSP group outings always need at least two staff members in the vehicle to help with the crisis. I would absolutely agree with that. Um, strengths and weaknesses are huge as a team when you're talking about work in the field and when you're talking about alertness and awareness. I know that I have team members who are just, their humor is very dry um, and they can be short and curt, um, but that works in a crisis for certain clients who need more structure. And so appreciating, first recognizing, appreciating, and communicating those strengths as part of a crisis management plan um, in terms of preventing a safety issue in the field, that would be great. We had an outing some time ago, one staff for every two clients. That would be ideal. I do know though that FSP teams tend to be understaffed and under supported. Um, and so, you know, I would, if you don't have that kind of a ratio, seating helps. Seating is huge. Pairing like a more calm person with a more kind of high strung person or just collaborating on it as a team is going to be super huge. Um, being alert, never take your eyes off the road. Scanning is huge. Uh, many people don't know that part of your driving test does ask you about scanning. Scanning the road every one to two minutes, looking left to right, and that includes stopping at that middle point in your rearview mirror. Um, so I think in terms of vehicle safety, um, FSP, driving safety, things like that, I always encourage every client have a wellness plan as part of their, their intake into a program. A wellness plan, how will we know what you look like upset? What kind of things trigger you? Would you be comfortable with a one-on-one -on -one conversation or do you wanna be left alone at first? Um, knowing your protocol around, okay, if someone escalates in a van, we immediately pull over and we separate the group, you know, remove the audience. There are some really great behavioral strategies such as like extinction and ignoring and those kind of things that can help a client regroup very quickly on their way to somewhere. Um, but it, it has to be talked about. A lot of the safety in the field practices have to be regular conversation during team meetings. What do we do if clients escalate in the field? We have this client who wants to go on every outing and they're super helpful, but it seems like that last five minutes before we pull up to where we, we're going, they escalate or they trigger other clients. You know, um, What behavior support plan can we put in place? Right, Because a lot of times we have to remember that our clients have skill gaps. And one of the things that we can do is recognize their strengths and fill in the gap where we can with training or introducing new skills or distress tolerance skills. Let's see, be mindful of other team members. Some clients do have major PTSD with vehicle accidents. For FSP outings, we typically don't invite the clients who have trouble getting along with other clients. Um, so if we're talking about safety and we're talking about um, being aware and assessing for crises, um, not inviting someone because they have trouble getting along 
can can work against us eventually. Um, so it would be an opportunity to increase maybe distress tolerance, um, maybe pairing them with someone on an outing, but working on that specific skill set, because we we also want to be proactive in preventing situations. If we have a situation that we can predict may become a problem, then we want to take those opportunities to reinforce good skills and support clients in those areas. And areas of safety in the field continued. So not only do we have to be alert around vehicle safety, our physical safety and environmental safety, um, and then also how we're sharing information and how we're feeling, how we're doing when we're going into the field, along with biohazards and people knowing where we are, we also need to be aware of illnesses and airborne diseases. The reason that this is important is because how many of us carry hand sanitizer in our car or maybe one or two extra bottles of water or some wipes? Um, and that's for anywhere we go, especially now. Um, do we have Kleenex in our car? Um, you know, would we recognize, because I know we all do like CPR and first aid and they cover a portion of like airborne illnesses and things like that. Like, are we engaged during those trainings? Are we aware of what it would look like if we came in contact with someone who had um, a contagious illness? How do we handle bed bugs? How do we handle lice? You know, safety in the field includes these areas because feasibly you would pick these situations up in the field and in the office, depending on how many people are coming and going from the field. Little sheets of soap that are very small and packets to carry and they only need water. Hand sanitizers, gloves, masks, plastic covers for your shoes. Um, I think what would be super important too is a first aid kit because they have gloves in them. They have wet naps in them. Um, how do we address clients bringing illegal substance during outings? That is directly tied to protocol that's directly tied to setting expectations to a client at the outset of treatment. You know, what is what is your protocol say? Are you in a program that stresses harm reduction? Can we build it into their program to say, okay, just don't share it and don't use it in the group? Like, I know that sounds a, a little odd, but when we talk about the, the way that mental health services are going, it's more inclusive and it's more meet people where they're at, which is a great thing. Um, because it pushes us to be better supporters, but then it also makes us alert and aware about situations like this that may come up that need to be addressed during safety meetings, during um, the development of policy and protocol. So in terms of how do you address people bringing illegal substances, what is the expectation that was set for them, and what is your policy and procedure around it? Um, how would you access Medicare medical care in the field in the event of an emergency? What does your policy say? Oftentimes your policy is really going to drive your behavior um, and whether or not your response or reaction to a crisis was in alignment with um, agency expectations. You know, how do you report incidents in the field? The reason that these things are super important in terms of safety is 
how would you call 911 in the event that a client did bring an illegal substance on an FSP group outing and now everyone's overdosing? You know, well, for starters, we can't really go into anything that would violate HIPAA and we have to describe where we are, who we are, what we're doing there, um, and the, the situation itself. So in terms of managing a crisis, we need to know like what the um, reporting incident process is like or how we are supposed to access medical care, whether it's for staff or ourselves in the, in the field. Setting ground rules for clients is huge, um, especially because setting those ground rules should require for you and your teammates to know what those ground rules are as well. Um, oftentimes I've seen safety issues arise out of miscommunication uh, between staff members and it trickled into a client issue. Um, so I would encourage you guys before even going on these group outings, there needs to be a team meeting that says, okay, what expectations are we setting with clients? Where are we going? How's everyone doing? What is the temperature check like? Um, what do we need to look out for? Um, does all of us have our badge, a cell phone that's fully charged and a key? Um, does anyone wanna be in charge of the waters? Does anyone wanna be in charge of the snacks? Like delegating these things in the field is gonna be super huge when we talk about a group outing. Um, you know, who's gonna be in charge of the first aid kit and contacting any medical support staff that we may need. Do we have any staff members who are um, not feeling well today? Maybe we can swap you out. Or do we have any clients who are not feeling well today? Do we need to um, put an extra person with them? Um, and that includes looking at clients who use substances. If you have a client who is actively using I would strongly encourage you to know the protocol around that client um, participating in activities because that can be a real safety issue. Whether that client is going up or coming down, you may see um, some really unsafe, unhealthy, or aggressive behaviors toward the people who they are with. So now that we kind of have like an idea of things to be aware about in the field when we talk about safety, but then also um, managing protocol and policy around things like that, we have to talk about how to define a crisis. Oftentimes, we will run into situations where someone is reacting to something that we don't deem a crisis. And uh, in the trainings, you know, like I said, they're usually a full day and we, we break out into groups and things like that. Some of the situations that have frequently come up is direct care staff see an issue that is a crisis, whereas a supervisory staff may say, you should have handled that differently. Um, and it's because the, the perception, the lens is very different. As a clinician, what rises to the state of a crisis for me may be different than what rises to the state of a crisis for a case manager or what rises to the state of a crisis for a psychiatrist or for a faith-based uh, support member or maybe a CASA. Um, you know, so your, your role sometimes dictates what you would perceive as a crisis situation. For example, a case manager may say, oh my God, the client is cutting, they're self-harming, they need to be hospitalized. Whereas the house manager may say, well, no, we've been working on this with their therapist and 
we're doing a harm reduction. Okay, well, wait, what? You know, like there's an absence in the communication, there's absence in understanding. And so we could very easily trigger a crisis situation by a miscommunication or just having a different lens around what I think is a crisis versus my team member. So when we talk about elements of a crisis situation and we're talking about assessing, are we in the middle of a crisis? Well, there are four primary elements that will let you know whether you are managing a crisis or you're on your way to a crisis. And please, if anyone has like any different information or you have like a very different perspective, please throw that in there and um, you know we'll go through it. Hospitalization is a possibility. So you definitely have a crisis situation when hospitalization is a possibility, whether it's a psychiatric hospitalization or if someone has to go to like an emergency room. Safety concerns. Safety concerns specifically related to danger to self, danger to others. Meaning, you know, I'm going to go cause injury right now. It's an imminent safety concern you know, that could lead to a hospitalization, whether for that individual, a staff member, or another peer. So if we're saying, are we dealing with the crisis situation? Well, is hospitalization a possibility? Are there safety concerns that are imminent? Or um, is there loss of access to pertinent resources, housing, uh, you know, job, employment, um, or a loss of freedom? Like if this person is in this trajectory of behaviors, they are going to end up in jail or in a hospital setting. So elements of a crisis situation is there's going to be a loss of a resource that is significant or freedom or life or limb. So significant issues. When we also talk about hospitalization being a possibility, we also have to look at severe regression. We work with people who are in the middle of recovery or relapse, or it's just a really, really difficult time for them, right? And so right now, our entire structure has been impacted and changed. And so we're talking about restriction, restriction on the uh, movements, our activities, um, access, you know, an increase of tension, an increase of worry, an increase of anxiety, an increase of hopelessness. And that's just for the general population. We add that onto what our clients are already experiencing. We may see a significant regression in behavior. We may see our, our clients completely decompensate and we may see an increase in substance use, isolation or withdrawal. Those don't necessarily say that those people are in crisis, but it could signal that they're on their way if we're looking at hospitalization safety concerns um, or increased substance use, which could lead to a hospitalization or a grave disability, okay? So when we talk about risk assessment versus risk management, we're talking about are you gathering information about the risk or are you putting together a plan to manage the risk now. Um, so assessment still, information gathering, information gathering. 
because this is this is kind of the trajectory that we want to look at when we're talking about handling a crisis. Have we gathered information about what is the problem? What is the need? What's going on? Is this something that's on its way to a full-scale crisis situation or is this something that can be addressed with food, shelter, or clothing? You know, a resource. Once we figure out which one it is, now we're talking about managing it. Do you need vouchers? Do you need your case manager to call someone? Or do we need to get prepared to transition this person to a higher level of care? Right? Then we talk about team players. Like, who do you need to have present during this time? Do you need to have a supervisor? Do you need to have a case manager? Do you need to have an LPS designated individual? Should we call the SMART team? Should we call, um, you know, the Psychiatric Emergency Mobile Response Team? Who are the team players? Once you get to the point of managing a crisis, then that needs to be included in the management. Who's the team player? And there needs to be someone who is going to be designated the lead the person that is going to make the decisions and people can adjust and follow, that person's gonna be aware of who needs to tap out, who does not need to tap out. Um, and this can actually be decided before you even go into a situation. So for example, an FSP outing. Okay, so-and-so, you're the team lead for today. Um, these are our high-risk clients. We typically have these kind of issues with them. Um, is it okay if we send them to you if they start to have any kind of agitation or frustration? You know, sometimes that's the peer support specialist because they have a, a very different kind of connection. Um, and sometimes that's the clinician. Sometimes it's the case manager. Sometimes it's the supervisor. Uh, it just really depends on the relationship. Um, and so that, that needs to be discussed before any outings. And then also, if possible, before bringing a new person in. Um, the protocol. What does your agency say specifically? One of the things that's very interesting is if you're DMH directly operated, versus a contract agency. Contract agencies have their own policies and protocol, but they're also responsible for being aware of DMH policy and protocol. And so when we talk about protocol around safety, there needs to be a very clear understanding around field safety, um, seeking medical assistance, car accidents, special incidents, injury to clients, those types of protocol need to be known before uh, people are out in the field and kind of um, operating in their capacity, because those are super important to be aware of. And then follow up, the documentation, who's gonna write it? Um, are we gonna debrief as a team? Are we gonna talk to this client again? How are we gonna move forward with that client and putting them back in a group setting? Um, our FSP team always discusses clients that may be likely to call after our phone. That is awesome. That is awesome. Um, and this is where a wellness plan would really be helpful. So if I'm a new person to your FSP team, I can say, okay, I know, you know, so-and-so is going to call this crisis line. Um, is there a wellness plan? Is there something that will walk me through how to help keep this person in assessment mode versus management mode. So when we also talk about identifying risk um, and predicting whether or not we're gonna come up on a crisis, we're talking about 
um, you know, how to not just identify risk, but potentially respond to it. So these are the things that we want to take into account when we're dealing with someone, whether they're um, a client who's been with us for two, three years, a client who's been with us two, three days. Um, what are they showing right now? What are their behaviors right now? What can we see? That's going to be huge, right? Um, and then also, what is their history of behaviors? So for example, if we have a client who's typically bubbly and we know maybe they smoke weed often to kind of help keep them even keel, um, but then all of a sudden they're just totally down a couple days in a row. They're typically not down or maybe they are um, easily agitated where they're usually kind of calm. Uh, they're short and curt with the people around them where they're usually the first to help out. Um, they haven't been sleeping where they are on a sleep routine regularly. There might be whispers of a crisis brewing. So when we talk about behaviors, what are we seeing now in history? What have we seen in this client, right? And then we go to the reason for a referral. Okay, we, we've got some incongruence. What we typically see with this client is not what we're seeing right now. And they were referred because they had a significant amount of poly substance use. Oh, okay, well, we need to check if they're using substances. You know, hey, like, how are you doing? Um, I've noticed these behaviors. Are you eating okay? Are you sleeping okay? You know, have you met with your psychiatrist? Like, um, things like that leading up to, are you using again? Or let's talk about your medication. Are you adhering to the, to the regimen? Have you met with your psychiatrist in the last month or so? Um, I have clients who mess with their medication. I have a particular client who is on, um, you know, several psychotropic medications and she adjusts them herself every four weeks and then will tell the psychiatrist they're not working. So he ups them. And I'm like, okay, well, let's increase the amount of communication between your team and your psychiatrist, right? Because there are points when she comes in and we visibly see that she's agitated. She's gnawing on her tongue. Um, she's like fidgeting with her finger. She can't sit still. And it's like, hmm, this reminds me of like five weeks ago when you told me you adjusted your medication. How's that going? You know, like really being aware of these areas that can transition us into a crisis situation very quickly and having some type of check-in around them or awareness around them and some type of response or follow-up. Okay, are there any questions or feedback so far? Any points we wanna collaborate on? This is a little bit of a longer response. Motivational interviewing questions do work when we're talking about identifying risk. Um, that is super helpful. Let's see if we actually do get attacked by a client or a client's collateral and there's no help, what are we allowed to do to protect ourselves? So that's actually kind of a two-part question. Um, my first response to that is, well, what does your protocol say? And is this a client that you have typically met alone? Um, and their collateral you've met alone? Um, what is the nature of the incident? So there would be more uh, debriefing around it. Uh, we may encounter a situation where we might have to push them. I know it's frowned upon on our end. Um, some clinicians carry pepper spray. So this is something that I would say 
if this is an inevitable situation, I'm going to ask, let's go back to assessing the crisis. What behaviors did you see? Was there an opportunity for you to give someone a break and totally not blaming? Um, so I, I definitely don't want it to come off like that. But I, I'm asking like, was there anything that led up to that interaction that let you know, oh, okay, I can no longer see this client in this setting? Or maybe there was a, a, a rupture in a relationship somewhere, or maybe there was a need that didn't get met, or maybe there was a relapse, or maybe we need to bring the psychiatrist in because this was totally um, not like this client, you know? Because I think there's a difference when we look at someone in crises and um, someone with a behavioral issue. And so I think that that would, that would again, point toward the protocol and how you guys um, prepare to respond in those instances. Because one of the things we have to remember is we're trained professionals, our clients are not. And of course it would be frowned upon for anyone to assault a client or injure a client. And that's why I strongly um, encourage you to know your policy and protocol around physical safety and acting out clients. Are they allowed to actually use it if need be? So in terms of the pepper spray, I think again, that is something that needs to be conversed about during a safety meeting or um, when preparing to take a client in. I'm asking one of our female therapists was attacked by a female client who was all of a sudden agitated due to not having any cigarettes. I think that in that kind of a situation, when we talk about agitation, where was the interaction? You know, unfortunately that does happen. We do get assaulted. I think the benefit that we can take from that is the subsequent debriefing and the planning that can come around that afterward is, well, what behaviors did we see in that client? Um, so-and-so case manager, what were they like when you met with them? Um, therapist, was there anything you noticed? Do you think you would feel comfortable reestablishing rapport around the client um, and getting back on their team? The question around, are you protected by DMH if you do have to push the client? Here's what I'm going to encourage you guys to do. Know your protocol, and they do offer, DMH does offer access to um, non-violent physical crisis intervention, meaning how do you put space between you and a client and escape safely. Uh, one of the, the things though is prevention is helpful. Prevention is key, awareness, alertness, and responding versus reacting are things that can really help you in a time of crises. And so when we talk about looking at these behaviors, what are you seeing in the moment is probably one of the most significant things that you have to be aware of and alert to, um, especially when we talk about potential um, aggression by clients. So for example, behaviors. What are some things that are letting you know what's going on with the client? Mental status. So this is more of a clinical type of documentation, but anyone can be aware of what, what this person's talking about, um, what they're seeing. So we, we talk about mental status like emotional signs. Are they crying? Are they yelling? Or do they just go silent? Are they arguing with you, yet you're not arguing back? Is there inappropriate laughter? Are they fearful of something? Are they confused? 
are they unable to come away from these emotional things? Um, behaviorally, are they rocking or swaying? Are they, you know, rapid breaths? Are they like shaking? Um, do they have pressured speech? Do they seem tense? Do they seem loud? It's really quiet. Are there finch clists? Um, is there poor eye contact? Like they don't want to look at you. Are they pacing or do they seem skittish? You know, someone crying doesn't necessarily say there's a crisis, but someone crying and rocking with rapid breaths and arguing and you always, you always, and you're like, whoa, let me go get you a drink. You know, try and put space between you or, well, let me go get someone who can help. You know, when we look at how to approach people who are um, struggling, we need to approach them with respect, inquisitiveness, um, calm, and like really honoring and validating their needs. So when we say respect, you know, sometimes when clients scream at us, if we're not healthy or well, we may take offense and we may argue back, right? But if we say, okay, let's take this approach differently, well, what can I help you with? What do you need? Because now we're assessing. How can I get you this thing? Is, is something happened? Like what's going on? And we want to be mindful about not asking too many questions, right? We also want to be mindful about staying out of their space. You can be very supportive six feet away. Um, defensive statements. You're not going to take me down. Whoa. Where's that coming from? Let me go get someone to kind of make sure that I'm supporting you the right way. Or, you know, a code word or a quick text. Um, sometimes overgeneralizing, using words like never, always, everyone, or uh, persecutory language can let you know that someone is in a negative headspace. Black and white thinking, blaming, preoccupations. They're just not able to talk or listen those behaviors let you know that you're probably on your road to someone having a meltdown or a crisis. Um, so again, when we talk about behaviors, we're looking for emotional signs that are indicators that someone is, is having a hard time. And so again, crying, rocking, tension in the body, skittishness, defensive statements, um, blaming, yelling, uh, verbally assaultive statements. So we're looking at those behaviors and what is the client saying? Are they saying they're okay? Many times our clients will say, I'm not okay. So if we're looking at these behaviors and the self-report of I'm not well, and we're observing that this is a very different presentation than what they're used to, or they always end in crisis and this is the same presentation as what they're used to, um, we have to be aware of those things and start preparing ourselves, okay, where's my nearest exit? Um, how do I respond to this situation? Um, who can I get in here? Who's gonna be the team player? Or is there space for me to back up and give them a little bit more space? Um, and then also the medications that they're on. Have they been taking their meds? Um, you know, is this the first week of their meds? Are they taking their meds and doing, um, using substances? Uh, so just to recap in terms of preventing crises um, and safe interventions, we're looking for a combination of behaviors such as 
um, emotional signs like crying, yelling, arguing, inappropriate laughter, confusion, behavioral signs such as like rapid breaths, tension in the body, um, cognitive signs such as defensive statements, arguing um, within themselves in terms of no, I can't do this. I can't, you know, that back and forth where you recognize they're entertaining internal stimuli. We're looking for that coupled with what are they actually saying about where they are, coupled with what observations have you made about this person versus the history that you have. And if this is a new person, you're not going to have to, um, you're not going to have that history. So you may have to check in with what your intuition is saying. And fear versus intuition are two very different things. Are you scared of this person or, or are you wondering what this person needs, right? So a combination of those things in terms of preparing us to transition from assessing if we're in the middle of a crisis to, okay, no, it looks like we're going into a crisis. Um, and is there a history of substance use or are they presently using? Is there a history of recklessness or are they presently reckless? This sometimes you may see in a client in the FSP setting where they're using, but they're also antagonizing other clients, getting into their face, taking other clients' things. Um, did they just leave from the hospital or they have a history of frequent hospitalizations? Are they currently assaultive or aggressive or do they have a history of those things? And are they currently experiencing command hallucinations um, or do they have a history of them? The reason that the history and presence of these things is so significant is do we have someone who has regressed and we're about to go into a crisis or do we have someone who is actively in a crisis and we need to address that? And then knowing the reason for the referral, especially if it's a new person, that's going to be significant. If the person is fresh out of a psychiatric hospitalization and you are seeing this combination of behaviors, they may have been released um, unstable and we, we may have to look at uh, another level of care, a higher level of care. Um, or if their presenting problems don't match with what we're seeing now, that can be assigned to us as a team like, okay, once we're done with this portion of, of meeting their needs of crisis management, then we may need to go ahead and reevaluate our treatment plan um, because we wanna also focus on preventing this from happening again. So the effectiveness of our treatment plan um, based on what we're seeing right now and what they came in with, we may have to do some work around that. And what are the expectations of the agency? So here is something that creates crisis situations often. I believe that you are supposed to help me with housing and you're not helping me. Now I'm angry. I'm not only angry, I'm emotional and I'm using substances. That is not a good combination. So oftentimes the expectations that they have of your agency can help you uh, presume whether or not you're going to end in a crisis situation. If they came intent on getting financial support and they're not able to get that, what are the chances that they're going to end in crises? Right? So expectations of the agency is huge and it has to be set from the beginning of intake. Making sure that clients are in the right place for the right reasons is also a really great preventative tool for um, managing and preventing safety issues. So what do I mean by that? Sometimes we have clients who come to 
uh, programs. They come to FSP. And this was, you know, our experience. Um, we had a number of clients who believed that being an FSP would give them access to housing. They absolutely believed that just by being an FSP, they would get housing. And, um, you know, housing in San Fernando Valley was very hard at times to locate, especially when you do have the stigma around mental health. And oftentimes the only way we could support people was to get them into sober living facilities. But once those were full, they were full. Well, then we had clients who were angry, agitated, frustrated because, well, I was supposed to have housing. Well, we're trying, um, but what can we provide for you right now um, until we get to where we're going? Um, and you're right, you're absolutely right, uh, Helena. Sometimes they are given the information about housing at hospitals to get them to agree to FSP. And this is why managing those expectations and setting those expectations can be one of the strongest tools you have around preventing crises. If I know what I can get, that's one thing. If I become aware that I was misled, now I'm angry. So when we talk about preventing um, crises in the field, we're talking about making sure that we're consistent with setting and meeting expectations regularly. Not only can we say, okay, meet, set and meet expectations, be aware and alert of what you're walking into and, and um, what the environment has in store or potentially could have in store, um, be healthy and feel alert and focused when you're going into the field, be aware of what you're wearing, and what's going on with you, but also be open to being a resource. Now we're talking about, you know, being able to successfully manage crises because I have a need, your agency is supposed to meet it and it's not, and now I'm angry, right? Um, and oftentimes many of our clients are victims of re-traumatization at the hands of the systems that they've flowed in and out of. And so there's already um, a mistrust present. And so really setting the expectations at the outset can be very, very helpful. We've even used it in times to come away from a crisis. So for example, you know, so-and-so, I totally understand that you need housing. Remember though, when we started, we said that we would try our best, but we don't provide housing. We'd have to link you to those resources, right? But then again, what kind of relationship do you have with the client to tie what your agency does back to the expectations set at the beginning, right? Because still person to person, still relational, still a balance. But expectations are huge in uh, managing safety issues and preventing them. Um, substance use and medication. Oftentimes you are just in a crisis because someone has either overdosed, someone has started using, someone has relapsed, um, or has been actively using and now we're aware of it and we have to kind of impose policy and procedure. Uh, and in and, and our experience, my experience, you may certainly end up in a crisis when you impose your agency structure against someone's individual will. Um, so when we talk about substance use and medication, this is a fine line and a balance because if someone's actively using or they are medication non-compliant, we're talking about willingness and ability. And if we're expecting people who don't have the willingness or don't have the ability to manage um, 
discomfort or mood issues or underlying emotional pain, we're expecting them to do that because we say so, we could very well find ourselves in a power struggle between our agency's policy and procedure and their will. Um, and that could most certainly end in crises. So one of the ways to prevent that is to be aware of who is actively using. Be aware of who is actively using medications. Be aware of um, who's med compliant, who's med non-compliant, because we need to put something in place to treat those particular behaviors, because we want to be preventative. We want to be responsive to needs, but prevent crisis situations. And one of the ways we can do that is being aware of who's actively using um, and who is med non-compliant, because oftentimes people messing with their physiological um, needs can create um, a crisis simply because of the medical fallout. All right, so we wanna get into strategies to manage your emotional response during a crisis. I always tell my staff, take care of yourself, take care of you. Taking a deep breath has so much power. Um, I have learned that as I have been at home with my preteen for two and a half weeks. Taking a deep breath has saved me and her. And so um, when we talk about taking a deep breath, it can be cleansing and it can be very uh, therapeutic in the sense of just stop, just stop. Um, so take care of you, take that deep breath. Notice your surroundings. You're noticing your surroundings for two reasons. You're becoming aware of how to keep yourself safe and you become aware of things that can potentially agitate this client. Um, take a step back, a physical step back. And usually um, in person, we actually demonstrate this. So I'm gonna go ahead and stand and I hope everyone can see it. But when we talk about taking like a physical step back, sometimes we find ourselves instinctively like tensed up when the client is having an issue. But you know, take a deep breath, oh, okay, right? Because what you also wanna do is to make yourself physically comfortable so that you can prevent yourself from tensing up and then um, presenting as though you are ready to engage in a negative way. So taking a very deep breath, noticing your surroundings and taking a physical step back. Um, Listen to your instinct. There is a really amazing book called The Gift of Fear. And, um, oh gosh, his name escapes me, but he really talks about the importance of listening to your instinct and understanding how your subconscious is um, taking into it the things around you. Uh, yes, Gavin DeBecker. Thank you. Um, it's a great book. And I think that, you know, sometimes we're trained that we're not supposed to have a natural emotional response to clients. Well, but they're people, right? And that's not to say that you should be angry and, and counter transference left and right now, but it's to say you're going to have a natural emotional response to someone that you sense is not in the right space. All of us have had that realization where we become aware that the energy has shifted. Like, have you ever walked into your bedroom or your office and you're like, somebody was in here. And then you start looking around to see what was moved, if something was moved. 
you know, like we, we all have that innate sense that our energy was adjusted or someone's energy was left, right? Intuition. Listen to what's going on inside of you. Why do I feel uncomfortable today? Why did I tense up when this client signed in? What's going on, right? Um, listen to that. So take your deep breath, notice your surroundings, take a step back, listen to your instinct. The reason the top four are going to be so important is because they're initial responses. These are going to be the things that are the most subtle and they're your initial responses usually. If you're not well, if you're burned out, you're just, oh, here they go again. You know, if you're not resting, oh my God, what do they need? Oh, I'm so tired. I can't deal with this. You know, taking care of you is integral to maintaining your safety. So when we talk about taking care of your health and wellness, that's just foundationally what you're going to need to remain healthy and safe in the field. But then take your deep breaths, notice your surroundings, take a step back, listen to your instinct. You're also still in assessment mode with these things. You're trying to figure out what does this client need, what's going on around them. Um, Self-care is very important. Thank you for that. A lot of people believe that self-care is a single life event. No, self-care is not going to the barbershop, getting your nails done, getting massage, right? Self-care is an actual plan that you have to take care of you. It includes stress managers, stress relievers, stress reducers. It includes um, minimizing your trauma inputs. It includes nutrition, wellness, sleep. It includes personal power and how you're getting those things. It includes activity and it includes relationships and what those things are pouring into you versus taking from you. And so when we talk about self-care and we talk about health and wellness, those things go hand in hand just for you to be alert and aware in the field. Um, and so those first four are going to be impacted by whether or not you're taking care of yourself and whether or not you are in a good place. Um, a lot of those are strained at the moment in terms of self-care. Yes, Willie. Uh, so what has to happen is there has to be an adjustment. Um, and so like we teach our clients how to brainstorm and take care of themselves. We have to do those things, especially now where you continue to have to meet people where they're at. Um, and this, the stress level is very, very different than it has been. It's always been high, but now it's uh, astronomical. Um, be open to remaining silent. Oftentimes when I'm just quiet, you know, it even works for your preteens. Uh, if you just remain silent, it's like, okay, well, tell me what you need from me and be silent. How can I help you get this need met and be silent? Be open to remaining silent. Um, this next point is super interesting because um, what we've got a lot happening in the last few trainings have been asking for assistance and swapping out. There seems to be a different perspective with regard to supervisors who are managing crises and um, direct care staff who are managing crises, where direct care staff are saying we we need to swap out or we need this person to listen to us when we're saying, hey, you're escalating the situation. 
And so when we talk about asking for assistance and swapping out, we're talking about being open to the fact or the reality that you may not be the best person to help this person right now. Um, Elisha, absolutely. Being silent and asking what clients' needs are and how we can help many times, and that's why we have to approach it with respect and inquisitiveness, many times people are not being listened to or heard. Uh, and what they've experienced is the system telling them for years what they've needed. And so when we talk about respect and inquisitiveness, you have to be open to remaining silent because they just need to get that out sometimes. And that's anyone. And so our clients oftentimes need to be heard and validated and reinforce that their needs are valid even if we can't meet that. And that's where asking for assistance and swapping out may come into play. Oh, okay, I just wanna hear you. Okay. You know what, that sounds like something that someone in another department can do. Do you mind if I go get them? Um, do you mind if I call my supervisor and ask them, is there any way that we can meet this need? Um, maybe I can get someone in here who can help you, who can make those decisions for you. You know, ask for assistance. Be open to swapping out. Be open to remaining silent because you also need to be aware of what's running through you, what's going on in you, what's happening in you. Because oftentimes we can create a crisis situation um, because we're reacting instead of responding. Um, I had a client once, we were transporting him from our FSP program into Olive View. And it was a while ago, a few years ago. and until he started using, he was just the sweetest, calmest person, but we always knew when he started using because it would always end in a hospitalization. And well, this particular day, he allowed us to support him. We drove him all the way to Olive View and he got through the intake with the charge nurse well and everything was great. But then a particular staff member came out and he put his gloves on and he like slammed his hands down on a counter and just looked at him like and our client lost it he had managed to maintain the crisis that was brewing in him for more than a few hours until that particular staff member came out and demonstrated that he was ready to respond in whatever way he needed and so oftentimes just being silent asking for assistance being ready to swap out being respective being aware of how you're coming off can really prevent a crisis situation. Otherwise, you do have those situations where your reaction, your response can trigger a crisis. Um, and then physical proxemics. Where are you? How close are you? Um, is your back against the wall and this client is in front of you? Um, is your team standing around looking like an audience at a school fight and you're standing in front of this client like this? Or, you know, like physical proximity. Where are you? What are you doing? What do you look like? Okay, taking care of yourself has a lot more to do with awareness um, and what's going on in you and, and being in a space to respond and prevent uh, so we can all make it home safely at the end of the day. Team approach. So this is super significant because what we're seeing is the county is requesting people to go out in pairs as much as possible. And with this new rule where you have to um, have a more a quicker response time to intakes and service provision, the team approach is the, is the most healthiest and um, it's seeming like the most effective. And one of the most challenging things is to 
say who's going to be the lead because we both we're here we support each other we're great we work well together that's wonderful but who's the lead who's going to call the supervisor who's going to okay this client is escalated let's go ahead and start managing the situation hey i'll be right back i just got a call or hey i'm going to step away and contact the supervisor to see if they can give us permission to make some of these choices you know like who's going to be the lead Who's gonna make the call in the event of violence breaking out? Who's gonna be the second if a tag out is needed? You know, the team approach is super helpful. Who's gonna walk around with the wellness plan? Who can we call in the event that this client has escalated and now we need to review this wellness plan and go point by point through it? A team approach is super helpful and um, effective. So when we're talking about safety proofing, you have to safety proof your physical person, short hair, long hair, whatever the case may be, moving it. Um, I have worked with young people before who 15, 16, and their hair just comes all the way across their face and they're doing that all day while trying to cross the street. Like, you know, pull it back, you know, at least till you get across the street or, um, you know, people who have um, a lot of jewelry on and they work in group homes. And the first thing I've observed is that kid or those children will reach up and just snatch it off. Um, so your physical person, what are you wearing? What do you look like? Can you move comfortably? Can you move quickly? Can you respond quickly? Can you run if you need to? Um, Proximity, how close are you to a beacon of light in terms of is the police station near? Is your office near? How far from your teammate are you? Does people know where you are in terms of like your location? Things like that. And then we're gonna focus on some de-escalation. So some specific nonverbal de-escalation tools and techniques, which research shows is um, super helpful in de-escalation. We're talking about proximity. I strongly discourage anyone from walking up on someone who is angry, reaching out to touch someone who's in calm down. No, you know, um, what are some phrases that you stay away from when you're trying to help someone de-escalate? The first one I suggest not saying is um, you need to or calm down. Let's see what some of the other ones are um yes any command phrase hospital 5150 yes oftentimes people will kind of throw that language around to say okay you're being crazy no <laughs> this person is having an emotional episode that's greater than what they have the capacity for um the difference yes between setting limits and setting consequences um or threatening consequences um setting limits okay i can give you um i can help you set an appointment um or we can um go together you know versus if you don't calm down i'm not going to help you at all you know um if you don't then those are typically um threats versus well let's see if we can try to um setting limits well this is what we have access to um and this is what i can do for you you know it's solution focus setting limits are solution focus threats are uh power struggle driven if that makes sense 
Um, being dismissive is a huge way to push someone into a crisis. Um, also, keeping it positive, where you, you say no yelling, no this, versus, well, let's communicate appropriately and let's lower our voice tone right? Because when someone is already emotional, think of where we're at when we're having an emotional response to something. I know me personally, the quickest way for me to go from zero to a hundred is for my partner to say, what's wrong with you? Oh, so now I got a problem. You know, like you just, it, there are certain phrases that just kind of take you over. Whereas if it's more um, inquisitive and like that person really wants to help, then it's very, very, very hard to be angry at that person who wants to help you. So if you say something like, you know, well, what do you need? Okay. Well, what I can do is this, and then I can find out about this because I don't really have an answer, right? The other thing you want to stay away from in terms of escalating someone is making promises just to get them to calm down. That never works. Um, promises you can't keep. Blamefulness. What did you do? What's wrong with you? No, or you need to know. Um, sometimes a person's trigger words are rooted in a trauma history. And so being respectful and inquisitive helps you to say, oh, well, what do you need and what can I get for you? Okay, I can't get that. Let me see what I can get though. Trying to avoid but is also super helpful. Those are those are more um verbal kind of de-escalation where you're more inquisitive, asking more about what they need. Um, yes, using and instead of but. Proximity, like where are you? Again, personal space is so important. I have often said to people, well, let me get out of your bubble because, you know, when I'm frustrated, I don't want anyone in my bubble. So let me back up, you know. Um, voice tone. Are you yelling? Are you blameful? Um, are you dismissive? Are you annoyed? Um, facial expressions. I have an RBF. When I'm really focused, I look angry. Um, so I have to be mindful of a neutral facial expression or um, a smile, not a grin, not laughter when someone is in crisis. Just, okay, what do you need? Neutral, neutrality. Um, body language are you open or um closed off like for example for everyone who's sitting kind of at their desk what i would like for you to do is just kind of like fold your arms and like try and be angry like angry angry you know unless you're in the moment it can sometimes kind of feel a little odd but that instinctively kind of changes the energy in a person right so what is your body language saying what is your body language communicating to the person on the other side of it, right? So in terms of body language, some de-escalation tools or techniques would include reflecting calm. Reflect that you're cooperative and collaborative. Remember that this person knows more about them than we know, especially in that moment. Normal tone, right? Monotone even. Oftentimes, a person will mirror what you're reflecting instinctively. Have you ever tried arguing with someone whose voice is raised? And so what you do is you start talking quieter, quieter, quieter. You know, 
it's like, oh, okay, well, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you is so helpful. I hear you. Let me make sure I understand you. Let me make sure that I get what you're saying because I want to help. You know, meeting a person where they are instead of trying to get them where you are um, is so much more powerful. Because if you try to get them where you are, you're assuming that you're in a better place than they are. But if we say, okay, how can I meet you where you're at? What do you need from me? How can I help? Um, am I understanding this correctly? I totally understand. Thank you for trusting me with that. Um, you know, just that respect is so huge in terms of um, demonstrating collaboration and validation. Uh, neutrality in your facial expression and in your body, uh, non-defensive posture where your hands are like open and relaxed. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I, I see people who kind of stand like this, like with the hands in front. Um, I don't know kind of how to feel about that, but I know that some people who just kind of like hands to the side also don't feel comfortable. So whatever your, your non-defensive posture is, be comfortable in it but also be aware of your surroundings in case you have to move. Um, anytime you can keep your hands open and relaxed, that's helpful. Anytime you can keep your jaws from clenching, that's helpful. Um, definitely normalizing and validating feelings, not behaviors. So that's what we also have to do in terms of uh, de-escalation is normalize the emotion. Normalize the emotional response. Try not to normalize the angry outburst. But wow, it would make me upset too if. Or I totally understand getting upset about that. But I, I would like to encourage you guys to allow the client to label their emotions or label their experience. Um, I had a therapist once tell a client, yeah, you, you look pissed off. Whoa. Okay. I don't know what kind of relationship you guys had before me being called in to manage the crisis, but I'm going to tell you that that did not sound helpful. Right. Um, the goal is to be effective in preventing the crisis or managing it. So definitely, um, reflect calm reflect, respect, um, be open, be relaxed, allow them to label their emotions, validate their emotional response, um, minimize gesturing. I am a handsy person. I have jazz hands when I talk. Um, but when I'm working with a client, I try not to do that. Um, try not to um, be, sorry, my alarm went off to let me know that we have 10 minutes. Um, try to keep eye level with the client, but don't force eye contact. Like, don't, no, look at me, look at me. You know, like, I, I want to get in front of your eyes. Like, just try to make eye contact so that you can relay your neutral facial expression um, and empathy. And don't argue. Try not to argue. This Remember, this person has reached an amount of emotionality that's outside of the capacity that they're able to handle. So when we talk about not arguing, that's so integral, so important. Let's not argue, but instead seek, be inquisitive, seek information. What do you need? Okay, well, so I understand you don't wanna work with that person anymore. We'll follow up 
Who would you like to work with? Is there anything I can do for you? Set boundaries. Well, we can't do that. Uh, what we can do is this. Like, do any of those things sound like something you would be comfortable with? Well, what would you be comfortable with? Well, why don't we take a break so that, you know, I can get you some water. We can find a comfortable place to they're supposed to do to follow up, right? Action that says, I want to be helpful. Provide choices, ask questions, um, offer help, offer options, and offer resources. Making sure that when you're trying to de-escalate, you're aware of your proximity, your voice tone, your facial expressions, and your body language has everything to do with you being aware of what they're experiencing. So what you're putting out, okay? When we talk about verbal de-escalation tools and techniques that um, impact what's going on internally, we're talking about, again, check in with you. How are you doing? Calm yourself. Take your deep breaths. Ensure the safety of others in the environment. If you can operate in a team, do that and then remove the audience. Refrain from blaming, that's so huge. Well, you know, if you would have had your psychiatrist appoint, you don't need that, right? Minimize open-ended questions. Be concise and listen. Set the limits. Well, we can't do this, but we can't do that. We can do that. Um, offer choices. Well, we can't do this. We can do that. What do you suggest? And then be open to tag teaming, right? Because we're no one person can resolve the issue for everyone. Okay. Um, so at this point, I'm gonna allow like one minute for everyone to type in any questions if you may have. Matching their high tone and bringing them down techniques. Ooh, what is my thought on that? I think if you were yelling at me, cause I'm yelling, I'm gonna get louder. Um, I think if you prompt me, because I, I may not be aware I'm yelling, then that can help bring me down. So, oh, wait, you're kind of loud and I just wanna make sure I hear everything you're saying, right? Versus, well, you're loud, so I'm going to get up here. So, you know, um, you just really have to know that client and then also be aware of what goes on in you when your voice raises. How do we handle feeling guilt about doing what we can to help client for a reason, but we don't achieve it? Guilt, that is tied to burnout. Um, it's also tied to um maybe feeling powerlessness about a particular situation that you would like to um, provide this client with. And if you're saying that there's guilt, then I would like to know how, how can we get you the resources that you need? How can you get the resources that you need to be effective so that you don't feel guilty, but you feel resolved in doing all you can? What would it look like when this happens over the phone? Um, first, I would say, you know, I, I want to make sure that I hear you and I want to make sure that, you know, I'm respectful and, and that I can support you. Is there a way that maybe we can schedule a time for you to come in to address this issue? Um, but for now, we just focus on what we can get moment. You know, things like that. Like, um, if it's happening over the phone, just making sure that you're able to uh, validate, normalize the emotional response, um, listening to the person without giving an opinion until they ask, and then um, scheduling a time to follow up. 
Alrighty. At the back of the PowerPoint are references um, in terms of reading materials, research information, um, to get a more extensive list of different techniques, but then also um, a list of information that you can get in terms of things you can bring back to your team. For example, invisible work in nonprofit social service organizations, implications for worker health and safety. That was really super in terms of providing information. Mm -hmm.